1: I'm Pete Wright, and I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Thin Man goes home is over. I want to do a little business with a blonde. You'll leave me alone, yeah? You Here, you'll leave me alone. I don't want to answer any questions. Now get
0: out. Oh, Nikki, Nikki, you're driving me crazy. This case is serious,
1: and all you do is fuddle around and guzzle cider. A Swiss prune juice. You have to have someone who could operate freely and without arousing suspicion. Someone who knew Peter Burton and could get him to do the work for you. we'll find who that individual was. Nick! Look out! Thin Man Goes Home, Andy. It's the fifth Thin Man movie. It is. He's finally going home. He's finally going home. God love him. I was worried, as I want to do, I did not read any of the synopsis. I did not know what this movie was going to be about when I started it. And I was worried that this was going to be a, a movie about domestication of the Charleses, that they were going to, like, I don't know, buy a new house together or something. And it was just going to be something about them all going home and their kid again. And I have to say I was relieved that they went to Nick's childhood home. It's interesting that
0: that was your read. My read on it, knowing that it was during the war, is that it somehow was tied into, like, the war efforts. Like, the thin man goes home. Like, he mm-hmm. he had gone overseas, and now he's coming back with the troops or something like that. Like Oh. Yeah, that was kind of the way that I had read it. Uh, so it's interesting that we both had different reads on the title, and both were completely wrong.
1: Because, yes, he goes— <laughs> He goes back to gaze at a windmill. He does. He gazed at the windmill. That is what he did, and it was fine. Did you like it as the fifth in the series? Like, at this point, is it a little bit long in the tooth for you? I loved it, actually. I
0: was a little worried when it started because it took a long time to really get stuff going. I'm like, wow, we're just really setting up the old hometown and, you know, his parents and his, you know, Nick's desire for, uh, you know, getting... Uh, a pat on the back from his dad for the career choice of his meeting all the people from town that nick knew as a kid like it really took a while to get things going once the mystery got started and once we have the guy knocking on the door and then falling over dead like things really got moving and i just i really enjoyed the way the mystery went we didn't have any of that <laughs> like a, the nonsensical. uh villain who could prognosticate the future and was having dreams you know that crazy sort of story like this story it was a good mystery there was there was interesting things that were happening uh you know there were interesting things that were kind of being developed with the mystery that all kind of tied into things going on in the town and i liked the way that it set up this idea of even a peaceful little burg uh like this town where he's from sycamore springs sycamore springs once you start poking at the skeletons in the closet they start coming out and the way that that played out and the way that it worked with nora dropping hints that nick was here to investigate something and how that actually created this mystery like opened these doors and all these skeletons came out like it worked really well i i really really enjoyed this one and i was thrilled that by this point in the series they were able to still Put something together that was a solid mystery
1: and had great comedy. Me too. Me too. I uh, and even as a fifth movie, I still found myself enjoying the the ride, even if it wasn't the ride I expected or, in some cases, even hoped for. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Well, when this film came out, it was approved, just like before. <laughs> just like all the other ones. Yes, just like before.
1: So what do I mean, um when I say that it wasn't the movie I was kind of hoping for? Here's the thing. I didn't laugh very much at this movie. It it didn't I didn't get the comedy that I feel like I had, especially between the sort of the couple comedy between Nick and Nora. It just wasn't funny. Are you saying it wasn't funny or are you saying it wasn't laugh out loud funny? I think mostly I didn't find it funny. Hmm. Okay. There were a couple of gags, you know, trying to wrap the dog up in the in the fur and the, the you know, squeezing down the crowded train tunnel. That was cute. And and so there were moments. I like the treatment of Nick and his cider uh, in that giant flask like that seemed like a bit of of weird sort of physical prop comedy that I thought was was kind of funny. But generally, it didn't have the same comic tone between the last of the movies that we watched, uh, certainly the first three. And, uh, I think I was, I was missing that. I don't, I, that's not to say I didn't enjoy the movie. Like I just enjoy spending time with Nick and Nora Charles. I thought that was fun. Um, but, uh, but I just didn't find it, I didn't find it funny. Uh, they charming, not funny, maybe. What do you think? Did it hit you differently? Well, it,
0: I, I found it funny, but I, I didn't necessarily find it laugh-out-loud funny. Like, in the, in the previous ones, I found myself laughing out loud more often at some of the gags, some of the little nuances, the the line deliveries between the two characters. This time, it was a lot more just, you know, smiles at, at what they were doing, some of the, the comedy. So, I mean, I suppose to your point, um, saying it wasn't funny, I'd say, okay, it wasn't laugh-out-loud funny. It was still cute. It still had its moments. Uh, So maybe we're on the same page. We're just approaching it from a different direction. Yeah. But, you know, this is the the first of the last two films where we're not having W.S. Van Dyke at the helm. Major, the Uh, second. uh, (laughs) Major, Major. Woodbridge Strong Van Dyke, the second. Uh, Right. (laughs) Who had died in 1943. Um, We talked about that a little bit last time. But, yeah, he had... He had cancer and a bad heart, and then because he was a a devout Christian scientist, he refused most medical treatments and care during his final years. And uh, so in 1943, he said goodbye to his wife, his kids, studio boss, and then committed suicide. Um, So very tragic end to his life. So, uh, but yeah, so that means they had to bring on a new helm Uh, Somebody to helm the film, and that was Richard Thorpe, who took over the director's chair for this film. He was kind of an MGM regular who had been, uh, yeah, I mean, studio director, constantly working, you know, very typical of the time where, I mean, it was like at least one film a year from from 1924 to 1967, just constantly, constantly busy. Are you familiar much
1: with Richard Thorpe? Well, I'm. I'm sure I've seen Richard Thorpe movies. Uh, I'm, I, I'm mostly I'm. I'm wondering if it's a Richard Thorpe thing or if it's a Robert Risk and Dwight Taylor thing, right? Because this is also the first movie that or the uh, one of the movies that isn't written by Hackett and Goodrich that we like so much. And I feel like that they also have a certain knack for writing the couple dialogue that I find really funny. And so between them and Richard Thorpe, I wonder what the what the the mix is of of where things sort of suffocated for me in terms of Richard Thorpe movies. um, You know, I mean, Ivanhoe, um, It feels like we've, we've seen some Richard Thorpe movies. I I haven't looked at Richard Thorpe, um, you know, too specifically. Are you, are you a, a Thorpe head? I don't know, honestly,
0: if I've seen much, if anything else of his, you know, just kind of skimming his filmography i i i'm not sure um maybe like above suspicion that might be something that i've that i've seen but uh
1: i i don't think much if anything i know uh i the the ivanhoe from 52 elizabeth taylor is one i don't think you hadn't seen that that's one, right? right right i still haven't seen that's that one that yeah. i i liked as a kid grandma liked it
0: yeah I mean, Jailhouse Rock may be one of the bigger films that people would recognize that he had directed. But, I mean, again, a film director with a huge list of films. Yeah. That Because he was really just kind of studio director and just cranked stuff out. So. Yeah.
1: Tarzan's New York Adventure. Did you see that? A lot one? of Tarzan Big. movies. A lot of
0: Tarzan movies. A lot movies. of Tarzan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say a lot. Two, two Tarzan films. So, okay. Tarzan Escapes and Tarzan's New York Adventure.
1: Yeah. So much Tarzan. He escapes and
0: goes to New York.
1: That's enough, Tarzan.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, with with the writers, Riskin and Taylor, and then with Thorpe directing, it is a whole new team of people uh, kind of involved in the project. And so, I mean, we like Riskin. Riskin was involved in It, it Happened One Night, which we've talked about on the show. We really like it. I worked on totally. Uh, you Can't Take It With You, Mr. Deeds Goes to, goes to Town. A film writer who is uh, very well known, and Dwight Taylor. I don't know if they worked together on much.
1: Well, Taylor then went on to write for the Thin Man uh, TV show, Uh, the teleplay three episodes of the teleplay. Um, You know, it's not like it. It's not like these guys can't write comedy. It's just a different comedy. It's a different comedy, and it's a story kind of that's not funny. Well, I'm wondering
0: because, I mean, it's a story that, it's based on a story that Riskin had written with Harry Kernitz. And I wonder if the story itself was more of the mystery. Like, I, I don't know the history of it, but I, I do wonder, um, is is it a sense of creating a mystery and then... Like we've talked about with other franchises before, where they then say, hey, let's now make this a Nick and Nora Charles mystery and, you know, make them the people who are solving this caper. And then they rework the story to fit it into the Thin Man franchise.
1: Yeah, that's like it's a it's a repurposed. It's a this is the Cloverfield paradox of 1944. Good God, better than that. (laughs) so all that is to say that that it does feel like a different tone it has all the same people and the same dog and everything's fine on screen and it's a fun setup the idea of Nick and and Nora and the dog going back to their um, to to Nick's hometown and kind of reliving his youth by way of um, you know this murder mystery is I think it's good, and I enjoy my time with it. I love that, you know, he he spends an overnight there, and he already wakes up, and he's wearing his cardigan sweater over his school T-shirt, like a, a high school jersey. Like, I thought those things were really uh, super clever and gave us a side of William Powell as an older man that, that was interesting and, and fun. So I, all of that is to say I like it. I like how they set the table for it. I didn't laugh that much. And I expected to laugh more, and that's okay. This movie also happens to be a uh, movie that took place during the war, was produced during the war. And that uh, also put some constraints on on production, in particular Myrna Loy, who had not been doing any movies. This, in fact, was her only uh, wartime film. She was a staunch advocate and uh, worker for the Red Cross. Do You know more about Myrna's wartime work? Well, I mean, yeah, definitely that. Also, she had just gotten
0: married to John Hertz Jr., which is, I think, because I think they were planning on shooting this in 42. And then, you know, she was dealing with her marriage to him and so didn't want to deal with the film at that time. And then with everything going on with the war, uh, and then, of course, W.S. Van Dyke's death, there were a lot of things kind of pushing this back. And so, yes, she had been very, very involved in the war. Um, She was working with the Red Cross. She pretty much stopped acting entirely to focus on helping with the war effort. And she, I guess, was so outspoken against Hitler that he put her on his blacklist and all of her films were banned in Germany. Uh, She was also running a naval auxiliary canteen and she did tours to raise funds for the war. And so it was hard for her to want to return to this particular or to, to the industry because she was really focused on giving back in her community and making sure people were taken care of during the war and you know i mean it was it was a big thing for a lot of hollywood people but definitely with myrna Loy, um, that was a huge huge thing uh, that she really wanted to support and be a part of the studio had actually started talking about recasting her I believe that they suggested Irene Dunn might take over the part. And fans uh, reacted very strongly. And so MGM kind of put the kibosh on that. And even Powell said, you know, quote, the fans wanted Myrna and they didn't want anyone else. And I wanted Myrna too. Besides the favorable reception of our pictures always received, I must say it was certainly a pleasure to work with her. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but they had done 14 movies together. So clearly they had a strong working relationship. So everybody kind of would. It was in a place where they just wanted to wait until she was ready, and so yeah. In 1944, uh, she was ready to start working on this. Here we have it. Her only wartime film. Powell
1: is looks to be once again feeling better. Yes, in this movie, he had a rough time two movies ago. Progressively getting better. Rectal cancer His cancer, and then also dealing with the death of. Who was it? Gene Harlow. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, as evidenced by some of the physical gags, there's a bit in the train station where he keeps falling over the dog, and I There's I la- <laughs> something. Okay. So maybe I lied. I did laugh out loud watching William Powell throwing himself up and down on the floor. Uh, that that was funny. <laughs> that was <some> a <laughs> funny physical I'm a simple. I'm a simple man.
0: Well, I mean, even stuff like when he's trying to fix that table and he thinks he fixed it and it still falls on his head it's it is the, and then and then that leads to what you know i i had quite a chuckle when his dad walks in and just gives him that look like god there he is again <laughs> drunk and passed out
1: on the floor like I mean, come on that's right. great yeah you're right that's funny and and the fact that the table smashing becomes such a uh, uh, it, it is a pleasant callback over and over again right the last time the table smashes what did you think of old uh, Bill Powell in this thing? Apart from looking better and healthier, how do you feel like he did it in this this run out? Is he looking tired yet? No, do you I feel like he's still. I loved him. I, it? I thought he was fantastic.
0: I think, I, I you know, they wrote out the kid, <laughs> they wrote out Junior, which I yeah. suppose to a certain extent is. Um, one of those things that you have to roll your eyes at a little bit, like, uh, okay, it was just, you know, they they didn't want to bother with a kid, so they write him out. He's at school, we didn't want to take him out, so he's, uh, you know, off with a nanny or something who's taking care of him. Um, But I felt that, honestly, it worked not having a kid. You know, it just, I liked the two of them as a couple again. I didn't feel like that had, you know, they had to be tied down taking care of a kid. And I, it was really, like, a furthering of his character because it was a story about him looking for acceptance from his dad for the career that he chose. And he's not really looking for it, but you know, they keep the whole gag about get a pat on his back from his dad for doing the job he does and how he's gonna pop a button off his vest. Like I yeah. loved that. I just thought that was a fantastic uh, you know, bit that they had in this film about a kid looking for acceptance from his dad. And I I really enjoyed the way that played out. And I enjoyed the way that um The story also approached alcohol this time, and it gave him another aspect to deal with, the fact that he couldn't have any alcohol while he was in town. So there were a few things with this character that I just, I felt William Powell just really tapped into well in the context of this.
1: I did too, and I I feel like, I don't know that I would have appreciated it as much, uh, you know, when I was younger, because there's something about watching how William Powell sort of channels being an older man at home that I really resonated with. Like, insofar as they wrote the kid out, it's fine. I mean, I I didn't... um uh, you know it, it is not believable when you consider what it is like to be a parent and have your kid thousands of miles away from you or however far away well they, let's say like they never it's not believable
0: they, for non-one percenters who just have their kid right. off at boarding school or with their nanny <laughs> while you're trying right, to the work right,
1: right. <laughs> the fact that they they had that one little note oh yes well we didn't bring it with us and then never mention the child again <laughs> uh is is a sign that's not not terribly believable but but i do think it's 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 fun to look at him relating to his uh, older father in in a way that that adds a different bit of texture to this to to the movie in in particular it does lead us into the mystery talking about what is the mystery and how they they get into it because i in terms of architecting the mystery in this movie that part i really connected with i loved how they worked into devising Nick getting into a crime to solve, and particularly Nora's role in it. What do you think about the setup? Yeah, I
0: completely agree. It was just a fantastic setup for the story where he's here trying to vacation. And to your point about him fitting in in town, like the fact that, you know, he puts on his old school Shirt and uh, his cardigan and everything. He's laying in the hammock and he's reading his old detective novels. Like it was exactly like that. That painting of a person, uh, kind of reconnecting with their youth, that I loved in his character. But he was there to just enjoy himself, and he kept saying, "I'm just on vacation." And you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. The way that Nora really pushed to uh, to create this mystery for him to solve by dropping hints to reporters and stuff and and kind of getting getting things going. I thought that was fantastic. It just it was a a great way for things to play. For
1: sure, for sure, for sure. And and that it be it was a it, it started with with her trying to buy him this present, right? The she goes out to get him this present of the windmill and 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 bring this present to the house and it turns out The present was part of a crime that as You articulated earlier It serves as the undercurrent of this sleepy Little town with apparently no crime in it And it ends up being not just A, a crime like an art crime But a high tech high stakes like spy thriller too buried under the paint of these paintings. I thought it was amazing.
0: Well, and uh, you know, very fitting for a wartime film, somebody is selling secrets to a foreign power. Like that yeah. th- like there's really quite an interesting line that they had put into this that I was like, wow, okay, that's that seems a little bigger than some of his other mysteries that he's been dealing with. But I don't feel
1: like it was too big a swing for the story. Right. And something you can you get that feeling like there you could easily see how this movie could have could have gotten a little bit uh, out of hand. I feel like the way uh, it was portrayed, the way that Thorpe sort of navigated balancing this war power thing with the the charm and the wit of Nick and Nora uh, uh, and and the the caper of this painting all the way to the big reveal was something that I thought really worked. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the way it was revealed. I enjoyed the science of it. The fact that his dad has his own laboratory in his house was a convenience that I don't feel like was overstated. It was a convenience that felt appropriate to the reveal of the movie, it was set up appropriately throughout. The the lab was used a number of times uh, in the movie, particularly uh, early on for the autopsy um, of the, the man who dies in the doorway, uh, Peter Bergen, whatever his name was. Uh, anyhow, um, all of that, I thought, worked really well. Is there anything for you that didn't work about the mystery and the setup and the staging of the thing? Uh, no, I thought it all worked great, because
0: we have a number of different layers to it. And this is what I like with these stories, where there are a lot of things happening and a lot of questionable characters, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing something wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were involved in the murder. And I for me, it was just a successful setup of these different characters and the story, and leading to—here's our spoiler horn—leading to the fact that the doctor did it, it all made sense to me. And it's funny, because when—after the murder happens, and he calls the doctor, and the doctor—we <laughs> cut to the doctor's house, in his— uh, housekeeper answers the phone and calls for him, and he comes from down the stairs. My first thought was, "Oh, he must have shot the guy because he's he was upstairs. He was upstairs, and yeah. uh, you know, and it had just been revealed he only lives a f- you know a few houses down or something. I'm like, oh, okay, he probably did it, and then I immediately kind of dropped that. But I need to keep in my head, it's usually the person who's never painted as a red herring that ends up being right. the killer. And um, but yeah, I I loved him as the killer everything tied together nicely the mystery of the the uh parentage of this uh, person who had been killed the way all of that played out with his mother and the um his uncle uh, like it all was really interesting and on top of that we had which for me was one of maybe my favorite things in the film was the fact that when Nick started going through the process of solving the crime Nora was like our audience surrogate like meta Narrating like what was happening. Okay, now it's time for the payoff or whatever you know. And she's uh, the payoff. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or, or, so good. or Or when the when Nick says to for, to the cop to take everybody's guns, she's like, oh, but what's going to happen to the payoff? Like it was <laughs> it was just a really fun way to put all of that together. So I yeah, I had a great time. Yes,
1: totally was. I I I did have a moment where I was thinking, you know, another director in another time for this movie, it wouldn't have been the doctor. Like let's just say David Fincher made this movie and it was 1999 or 2005 or whatever and and David Fincher made this movie who would the killer have been Andy? I don't know. I'm not sure where you're going with this. It would have been his own father. Oh. It would have been his own father. Yep. Totally. This would have been, because that's the whole that was the whole, I was thinking the whole time it's like he's going home to have resolution with his dad and it turns out there is no hope for a father son relationship. It's, it's just, just another a horrible story. That's exactly where I went. That's a like, horrible dad, story. How could... It was wow. a dad how could you story. Yeah. <laughs> and and the the punchline is you can't go home again. That's the whole thing. And you'll never get a pat on your back. Sorry. Yeah. No, you'll never get a pat on your back. And also, Asta's head would have been in the box. Wow. Okay. That I I can't help it. I can't help what I think sometimes. Well, I want you to write that script and see if you can sell it to Hollywood. <laughs> We're going to do a six-part uh special podcast event. It'll be an audio drama of The Thin Man Goes Home, but spoiler, it's his dad. <laughs> oh. Uh, um Asta. Asta, I I will say, he's looking older.
0: <laughs> well, I will say I showed my wife uh when Asta does the little baking trick and I'm like, "Should we work on teaching our dog to do that?" because it was really adorable. <laughs> Come on. It was great. Even when it was like speed ramped and looped and yeah, all yeah. of the different tricks they did yeah. with it. Yeah, there was your, I mean, that was um, a good point, not relating to Asta, but there was that weird double take that we had when Nick was, um, I think when he was talking to, oh gosh, who was he talking to? Was it with Laura Larabel? And, and he, they do like a weird, moment where they reverse the film and play it back almost to try creating a double take with the characters which is a little strange but uh but yeah asta uh, you know asta's fine i i enjoy that asta is there kind of as as kind of comic relief but i i think i enjoy asta more when Asta's in, uh, you know, helping Nick mode and kind of doing a little detective work, like going and pointing to the guy in the bushes or or things like that. Whereas when Asta is uh, like when they're on the train riding up to uh, to the town and they have to go sit in the luggage car because um, they have a dog and Asta is getting picked on by the goats and goes and sits on a cage, and then it happens to be full of ducks, and they start nibbling at his tail, and he goes and
1: hides behind a milk jug. And all of that, I'm like, all right, this is not my favorite stuff. The Asta storyline did not live up to the Asta has a family with a cheating wife uh, storyline in the second movie. Well, we've never gone
0: back to that either. Like Even when they went back to San Francisco in the last film, It's never, they they never return to the home life. So I'm wondering if Asta really did put her out. Yeah, maybe. I mean, dogs can be hard. Yeah, she's
1: gone. Uh, And and it is, I'm so curious in terms of foreshadowing next week's show. I'm very curious what they do with the last movie because Asta, Asta doesn't make it to the last movie. Yeah, that's sad. Asta's last credit, I think we've talked about this, was 1945, Rhapsody in Blue, immediately after The Thin Man Goes Home. So, dog days.
0: Yeah, it's, it's what happens to a dog, right? They
1: don't live that long. And people also. Everybody dies. Everybody dies, yeah. Is to Asta's head in the box in the last movie? Be oh, amazing. God. Oh, God. <laughs> I love dogs so much. Stuff. Why am I doing this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what
0: your... I love
1: dogs. What are your can't goals get here? I can out of my head. <laughs> okay.
0: So here's the thing. Obviously, with these films, they are very light Dashiell Hammett. I, I don't think that I had mentioned this, but I actually am reading Red Harvest right now. You didn't mention it. It is a very gritty thick of what's the rumpus sort of dialogue mystery story and a um, lot of murders in particular in that one because i mean you know the detective basically starts a gang war in this little town and it is uh you know it is very gritty bloody stuff it is not funny in the least and so to think that he crafted the thin man i just think that the writers that we had starting this franchise probably really pulled the comedy up to give it more of that lighter tone. And as this series has gone, it's drifted farther from Dashiell Hammett, other than just the fact that it's Nick and Nora Charles, the characters from his book. I, I think that Hollywood has kind of said, this is kind of a family story. It's, it's something for everybody. And I think all the Asta stuff is probably there. If I was a kid, like that would probably have been my favorite stuff.
1: Yeah, but probably. Sorry, I got sidetracked because one of the one of the mentions in IMDb trivia on Asta, Skippy the dog outgrowing the part. I don't know about Skippy the dog. Skippy died in 1951. Yeah, right.
0: That's well, and we sh- and we should just say Asta was not played by Skippy in this in this film no. or the previous. It is a different That's dog true. playing um, Asta at this point. And you could tell there's no spots on. Like this dog had spots, and I was like, I don't think yeah.
1: I asked to had spots. No, I don't think so too. All right. So the other thing I that I think is important that we talk about it has been a long time since we've gone down this road. But when I say to you, Andy, Colt official police, Colt detective special Winchester Model 1892 rifle, Colt 1911. Type 99 light machine gun. Andy, what website am I visiting? That must be IMFDB, Internet Movie Firearms Database. Internet Movie Firearms Database. Yes, the Internet Movie Firearms Database, which tells us what this very special gun at the end that Lloyd Corrigan, uh, playing the part of Dr. Bruce Clayworth, picks up, the suppressed Type 99 light machine gun. Uh, And there has been some... As there is on the internet consternation about what kind of, of gun this really is. Is it really a Japanese gun, like they said, or is it actually a different kind of gun that they found the American version of the same gun? But it looks very much like the Arisaka type 99 machine gun, 7.7 by 58 millimeter Arisaka uh, machine gun. And it's a, uh, it's a very, very sexy weapon that you can find on the IMF DB. Yeah, I think of the movie, they
0: call it a World War, you know, is the souvenir World War II Japanese Nambu sniper rifle.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And that that is a gun that has been seen in a number of different uh, movies. After 1944, this, it uh, according to the IMFDB, this is the f- first movie that it appeared in, um, and from there, it went to Daughters of China, Retreat Hell, Never So Few, Merrill's Marauders, MacArthur, uh, blah, 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 so many, so many. Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, The Thin Red Line. Anytime Japanese soldiers are portrayed in film, they're carrying this gun all the way through The Wolverine. In 2013, Japanese soldiers carried this gun. So wow. um, this was the the. it looks appears to be the cinematic debut of The Type 99 light machine gun Arisaka. It was also capable of being fitted with a bayonet, which was not portrayed in this movie. Yeah. Interesting. IMFDB.org. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. What else we got? uh, Well, we talked about
0: Powell and Loy as our leads here. Going back to the cast, though, uh, you know, there are a few people that definitely stood out that I wanted to call out like edward brophy first of all he was actually like he's um brogan the guy who keeps popping up in the bushes who is the um uh the central he's kind red of,
1: herring yeah
0: well he's he's <laughs> kind of the red he's not really ever a red herring for nick but he's definitely nora's red herring yeah but he, and um he kind of is this thug who is um presenting himself as a postcard salesman so it's kind of it's kind of funny, and uh, but he was actually in the first Thin Man film. He played a character named Joe Morelli in that film. But Edward, Edward uh, Brophy is a familiar face in this franchise, so I just wanted to call him out because I did enjoy him in the part. I thought he was fun, and the way that you know he kind of had that relationship with Nick, I thought was uh, you know worked well for me. The next one was Donald Meek, who is the owner of the uh, the store selling all the art pieces, Willie Crump. Um, He is a face that is so recognizable. He's just one of those very much character face that was in all sorts of things. He was in You Can't Take It With You. He was in Stagecoach. Um, He's just one of those guys uh, who is a regular hollywood face through this period through like the 30s and 40s in particular like he, you'll see him pop up a lot because he's he's a great character actor and he's a face that is very fun and seeing him as the flustered owner here who doesn't want to sell this painting to nora who kind of talks him into it like it was just great he, he was a um, a great character for this bit part I I would
1: say um, the character of Willoughby Peavy, the the nephew we're introduced to in the uh, very early part of the film, as he as Nick goes home, is also one of those suspicious characters who's there and then disappears for a while. He was one of those faces too, and I don't I don't I, I couldn't name his top four for you, but he's got two hundred eighty credits. From 1933 through um, Perry Mason, 1964, 22 episodes of Perry Mason as Judge Bates and Judge Cadwell. He was a he was a number of judges Um, and lots and lots of Westerns. He was in all the Westerns as a gunslinging. Um, sometimes do good or sometimes near to well. But I would not have been able to to tell you that his top four were In a Lonely Place, Rocket Ship, XM, Giant Claw, and Tennessee Johnson. Haven't seen any of those. Uh, but man, did his face look familiar to me. 280 credits. Yeah. very do players, man. A great actor. In a Lonely Place,
0: uh, Bogey. Uh, that's definitely a strong one uh, to check out. He was also in, like, Invaders from Mars, the original Invaders from Mars. And so yeah. he's one of those very much a face. He played a lot of military guys, or as you said, a lot of people in Westerns and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, uh, very big, very famous. Another one is um, Nick's dad, who was played by Harry Davenport, very much another great character actor who is in like, uh, I remember him probably most from Meet Me in St. Louis. I just love that film, but he was also in Gone with the Wind as the Doctor. He was in You Can't Take It With You again. These actors who were, like, contracted with studios at this time, it's like they were in, you know, four or five films a year sometimes. Uh, you know, he did Foreign Correspondent with Hitchcock. And, um, yeah, so just very busy. King's Row, we've talked about him there. He was Colonel Skeffington in that one. And so, uh, you know, just somebody who has a great face for... Um, for film and used it well in the many many films that he ended up doing over his career
1: was it laura ronson the daughter was that her name laura what was her full name what they keep calling her uh laura bell laura bell yeah uh gloria de haven yes what would you know of gloria de haven anything 82 credits i just want to say i loved her
0: the way that she portrayed an actress, somebody who was taking acting classes, and then everything that she did in the movie was performed, like she was being so big and putting herself out there as Huge. a performer. And that just always cracked me up. She, I thought she played the role well. I don't know, other than like, you know, she had a uh, bit part in Modern Times with, with Chaplin, I don't know much of anything else that she has done. Like I don't know if I could call anything out specifically that I had seen that that she had been in. Other than things like she was in a couple episodes of Fantasy Island, things like that, uh Love Boat,
1: things like that, Highway to Heaven, but I Andy Ryan's Hope. Ryan's Hope, Andy. 79 episodes right when I would spend my summers watching soap operas. I never watched Ryan's Hope. But yeah, she was in a lot of TV through
0: the 80s. So it's entirely possible I had seen her um, later in her life
1: in some capacity. Her last bit was 2000, Touched by an Angel. Did you ever watch Touched by an Angel? No, never did. Probably another another thing where you just don't watch TV. Mm, Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We should talk a little
0: bit about Carl Freund, who was the DP on this. Considering that this whole franchise uh the reason we're talking about it is because the very first film was part of our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series looking at him because of his great cinematography the shadowy use of black and white and here we are with Carl Freund another very prominent name in cinematography in early film i mean he'd shot stuff like Metropolis which we've talked about on the show uh Dracula uh, when they did that and a lot of Kind of that the early horror uh, crime films, murders in the Rue Morgue, and uh, a lot of the noirish sort of stories. So, knowing that kind of his history, what did you think of the look of the film? Did it lend itself to anything that made it stand out?
1: I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think there was anything that that they were doing in this film that that felt. Particularly of of that piece And maybe it was because it was It, it wasn't a hardcore sort of Noir film um, I, There were some bits I liked the, um, you know, when he's sneaking Around Crazy Mary's apartment uh, And looking Through drawers and stuff, Mary comes out And and hits him over the head, like there is some Interesting use of shadow play in there Same thing in the, in uh, actually it wasn't Mary's, it was Peter's apartment yeah. And then Mary's Shack out on the out on the the, the bog uh, that that I did think were were interesting and compelling sort of uses of camera and location. Overall the the movie is is pretty straightforward. I don't know. Is there something I'm missing? Well I, I don't
0: think that there's anything that stands out too much, but I do think that for the mystery elements of the film, I mean yeah it's it's a thin man film with uh, the light comedy touches. And so I I don't think the cinematographers really have ever been playing too heavy in the noirish lighting. But I would say that I felt in those darker scenes that Freund was bringing some of the darkness out. Like you've got scenes in the backyard at night when Brogan is in the bushes, like the way that the darkness worked, I, I always felt was effective the shadow play that we have like with crazy Mary's shadow, when she clocks Nick over the head there was just a lot of moments throughout that I felt lent itself to allowing the mystery to feel at home in this particular place. So, to that end, I thought Freund clicked well with the the type of film to make it look um, good without
1: going too over the top noir. Yeah. Well, speaking of of the look of the film, what do you think of the sound of the film? The music by uh, David Snell and some uncredited Lenny Hayton on a slough caper anything uh stick with you out for you for the music i i, I nothing that sticks out i would say it probably all fit
0: in context of kind of the what i've grown to expect from the thin man films yeah me too so to that end i think that it's it's a similar thing where they're finding the right tone to fit kind of that comedy mystery side of the world side of the genre
1: yeah i mean fun movie yeah, I enjoyed it more than I thought. I think there were some folks in the community who kind of set me up saying that this wasn't one of the better ones. And uh, I I kind of feel like I disagree. I, I enjoyed my time with this movie more than I expected to.
0: I at this point would probably say it's my second favorite. I had an what? absolute blast with it. Yeah, I, I just thought it was a fantastic film. So
1: um, shock and awe. Shock and awe.
0: Well, there it is. All right. Well, we'll be right back, but first our credits.
1: reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by Southside aces oriel novella and eli katlin andy usually finds all the stats for the wards and numbers at d-numbers.com box office, mojo.com imdb.com and wikipedia.org find the show at true story.fm and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews please consider doing that for our show Big awards movie. This one they made it for awards. It was probably released in December uh, to just limited to get that early Oscar nod. Uh, right? I mean, am I right? You're big. so so right. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs>
0: no, this was okay. um, a tricky. Uh, it just it did not play as a film that was designed for awards. Interestingly, I was looking because I've talked about how there weren't a lot of awards happening. At this particular point in time, the Oscars was kind of the thing. Well, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association did actually start the Golden Globes in 1944. So it would have been possible for this to have uh, been nominated for something in those early days. but, um, But it wasn't. Yeah, they started Best Motion Picture Drama in 1943. Uh, the Song of Bernadette won that year and then Going My Way in 1944. And, uh, you know, this film came out um, in 1944 and so uh, would have lost to Going My Way had it been nominated. I don't actually see that they had been nominating other films. It, they had basically just been, for the first five years, they had just been picking the film that won. It wasn't until 1949, that was the first year that the Golden Globes, uh, they picked two films, but only one of them won. And then after that, it looks like they, for a while at least, they move into picking five films, uh, very similar to the Oscars. So, yeah, it's interesting to see that at this particular point in time, you know, other people were saying, hey, we should do some sort of award as well. It's just in this particular case, this one didn't get anything.
1: Yeah, How about the numbers? Andy, how did you at the box office? What did Eddie have for us this week?
0: That's right, good old Eddie Mannix does it again Well, as we've said for the first uh, film in the franchise, not directed by W.S. Van Dyke this budget was $1.4 million, or nearly $20 million in today's dollars. That is actually back to the higher budget, again, in the franchise for some reason. During the war, I'm not really sure. Uh, this movie had a January 25th, 1945 release. Not sure why it ended up in 1945, uh, but my guess would be it had something to uh, do with making it during the war, Lloyd's uh, busy schedule with wartime efforts. And it's interesting because in some places this is actually listed as a 1944 film. And I think it's specifically because they had a trade showing for the film in November 1944 in New York City. And then, I don't know, I guess kind of a Christmas premiere, weirdly in Cumberland, Maryland. I'm not actually sure why. It was actually Christmas Eve. Um, in 1944 and then it opened in January 1945 Uh, so it's like they had a few previews beforehand so some places do list it as a 1944 film but it is in fact 1945 when it was released to the public uh, this opened opposite National Velvet, and it did find its audience earning $2.8 million domestically, or $40 million in today's dollars. That is the same gross as the last film, actually, but since the budget was high, this one had the lower profitability. It still did well with an adjusted profit per finishment of 201000 and likely was considered a wartime success.
1: All right. Well, I'm still glad we're watching these movies. I thought by this time in this series, six movie series on The Thin Man, we'd be in the dregs of the one, two star, just kind of rolling it out just because that's what we do. But I'm impressed that this is still this is these are still entertaining. Glad we're doing it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, you know, we didn't really talk about the alcohol aspect of this,
0: but the fact that Nick is drinking cider through this whole film, I mean, they've written it into the script that he's drinking cider because it's hard to get a drink in his hometown. He doesn't want his dad to think he's a drunk, all of this sort of stuff. And so you don't see any cocktail shakers in this. It's just Nick drinking cider out of a ridiculously large flask, which is kind of funny. But according to the Hollywood Reporter, 19, April 1944, they said wartime liquor rationing prompted producer Everett Riskin, uh, who's actually the writer's brother, to eliminate the heavy drinking that had been an integral part of Nick and Nora's daily life in previous The Thin Man films. Uh, so, there you go. That's why, uh, even in this film, they're showing Nick and Nora are also rationing their liquor. You should, too. They're
1: doing their part
0: for the war effort, Andy.
1: Hmm.
0: All right. I wonder if that was a note from Myrna Loy. As somebody, right? Yeah, I mean, really. I mean,
1: do your part. We need the Red Cross needs the booze for wartime sanitation. (laughs) All right. Well, um,
0: yeah. It's it's a it's a good film. I really really enjoyed it, and uh, as I said, this very very much might be my second favorite in the franchise. We only have one more to do, and uh, we'll look at the trailer for it here right now and that is song of the thin
1: man you know if this rampage of respectability persists we'll have to buy you a bulletproof girdle <laughs> You're magnificent. We just have to walk 10 minutes in various directions until we find the right institution. What, you've got the nose of a bloodhound. Don't let him worry you. The rest of your face looks fine. (sighs) I wouldn't know anything about Hollis. Your eyes are getting shiny, Miss Page. And your mouth's getting big, Mr. Charles. Where is he? Why don't you ask me if I killed Tommy Drake? You probably had good reason to. How about a story, Dad? Oh, no story for you tonight. You've got to get some sleep. But your story's always put me to sleep. I said I'd <laughs> take that piece of... Go to leave you that night, brother. Just one word from me and that dog of mine, I'll tear you to pieces. Well, buddy, I guess this is it. Time for that little bombshell. Tell everyone how Tommy Drake was murdered. Tell them why Fran Page was murdered. Tell them about the someone who went to her apartment. That someone is here among us now. Letterboxd, Dandy, We need to talk about Letterboxd. You know what Letterboxd is. It's our very favorite social media network for a social network for uh, movie lovers. Uh, And if you fall in love with it, too, fair listener, and you want to share your reviews and your watch lists and follow other people's reviews and watch lists, all you need to do is uh, head over to Letterboxd.com and sign up. If you fall in love with it, you can upgrade to a pro or patron account and you can save a little money using our discount code NEXTREEL or just visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox. It'll whisk you over to the checkout page with that 20% off already applied. Andy, what are you doing? Is this a seven star and four hearts?
0: (laughs) Seven star (laughs) for us two
1: stomachs. (laughs) Throw it all in there. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. After the
0: thin man, I had given four stars and a heart. Another thin Mm -hmm. man, three stars and a heart. Yep. Then we shadow to, for me was four stars and a heart. That was back up there for you. Shadow for yeah. me was, uh, I think it was three. Okay. I feel like this one's back up at four. Uh, I just had an absolute blast with it. So the thin man goes home four stars and a heart from me.
1: I am not quite as high. I think I was more impacted by the, uh, you know, by the the more sort of stoic. Kind of approach to the movie um, I, I wanted more laughs I probably was impacted by the fact that I expected More laughs and didn't get them And so the bar was probably set too high uh, I'm going to stick right at three stars So it's a real roller coaster for me uh, Four three, four three Four three But who knows what next week is But uh, that's where we are Three stars and a heart for me Alright well that will leave it at three and a half
0: And a heart over on Letterboxd. If you want to get your own pro or patron membership, just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. You can get 20% off and it works for renewals as well. So what did you think about The Thin Man Goes Home? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into our Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Letterbox it, Andrew
0: as Letterbox always doeth.
1: All right, so I want to play. I want to play a guess the star game with you. <laughs> okay, are you going to read it first, and then I have to guess what the rating is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. This is uh, Jun Dai has this to say about the Thin Man Goes Home. Probably has the most interesting story, despite leaning on a few cliches. A brilliantly done climax. Then this particular Thin Man film seems to be under the illusion that people are here to see the mystery and not just see the antics of a detective that solves everything through a haze of martinis and his wife who eggs him on through a haze of martinis. They teetotal their way through this whole film, and the comedy is much diminished. The story still doesn't make much sense, but it is more interesting. I noted that Carl Freund was the cinematographer. Other than a few scenes, the photography didn't stick out that much. I'd be curious to know more about him. That is from Jun Dai. That's from August seventeenth, twenty twenty one. How many stars did Jun Dai give this movie? I know you like only
0: giving full stars, no half stars, but that never stops you from pulling half star reviews from people. True, or stars with half stars, or reviews with half stars. I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel like it was that bad of a review, though. So, I I feel like I would say. I mean, it can't be. I don't know. The fact that you're doing this makes me think it's probably not like a two and a half.
1: I'm going to say one and a half stars. Okay. If you had written this review, how many stars would you associate it with?
0: I mean, it, it's not that bad. I, I, I would say two, two, th- yeah. two, two, or three. I mean, it's a fine review. It, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. It makes me think that the person thought it was a fine film. I didn't love yes, it, but it was me fine. Me too.
1: I might put it as a, as a you know, if I were still doing half stars, it'd be two and a half, but three stars. Like, it's a middle-of-the-road review. Jundai gave this a half star. What? This is a half star review. Half wow. star. <laughs> Holy cow, I, Jundai. What level of exuberance must accompany a five-star movie from Jundai? That's cr- amazing. That is crazy. crazy. In crazy. fact, now I'm going to go find Jundai. There you go. What do you got? Well, I've got a four-star by Ely.
0: Uh, Who Four stars and a heart Who has this to say Nick's insistence on trapping Everyone in a room together So he can explain at length How he solved the case Is peak drama
1: And I live for it I do too, Ely I do too Peak drama Oh, good Oh Jundai gave Paddington 2 One star And (laughs) the first line of the review, Andy Is An improvement on the original In almost every way (laughs) What makes me wonder about the original? How about Paddington? It was okay. I like their house. Generally enjoyable. Pretty dumb. I hear the sequel is better. Half star. Wow. There's somebody who's not generous with stars. Okay. Have you seen the movie Small Axe? Nope. Five stars. Each film in Small Axe is great, but together they create, they're greater than the sum of their parts. How about Tokyo Story? Yes. 1953. You've seen it? That's a yeah. That's a big one. Five stars. No film is more fundamental than this one. Well, that's that's probably a pretty common review for that film. Eight and a half. Five stars. The greatest film about filmmaking. Mm. My neighbor Totoro gets five stars. All right. Wow. That is a that is that that lineup is. I I don't know what word is to describe the variance of stars very generous with language thanks letterbox you know what i got the other day pete stephen king's latest want to borrow it do you know who you're talking to what do you mean andy when's the last time i read a paper book it's been like decades i would much rather use kindle or better yet
0: audible what am i thinking i don't read paper books anymore either i am an audiobook guy all the way for those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on the Next reel. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextwheelcom slash
1: audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible.
0: Series like Twilight,
1: with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, All on Audible. Our Train Spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow up book that largely inspired T2 Train Spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on
1: Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus,
0: they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.